This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hey, before we get into today's show, just a quick reminder about Real Water Sports. Consider realwatersports.com for any and all of your surfing purchasing needs, including surfboard purchases. Listen to this. This is among the surfboard manufacturers they carry among their 1,500 board inventory. Lost, IPA, AJW, Black Rose, Channel Islands, Christensen, FCD, Jerry Lopez, Hayden Shapes, JS, KT, Mark Richards, Maurice Cole, Pizel, Rawson, Ricky Carroll, Roger Hines, Robert August, Ryan Sakel, Smith, Stewart, Takayama. They also have a used board and a Blemrack where you can get great discounted product. They have sales going kind of all the time for various things. And then additionally, you will save 15% on surfboard accessories. This includes fins, wetsuits, traction, leashes, board bags, if you purchase a surfboard. So you add that on, put it in your cart, and then it'll automatically deduct 15% off the accessories with any surfboard purchase. Why would you go anywhere else? They have excellent tutorial videos as part of their surfboard buying guide or pick up the phone. Talk to a human being. They're incredibly knowledgeable and they'll ship you aboard no matter where you are in the world for one low flat fee. Need I say more? Realwatersports.com. Twenty years ago, Single Fin Yellow debuted, which is actually hard to believe that it's been that long. And in case you haven't seen it, it's definitely worth tracking down. I was weaned on surf videos that were essentially surf porn. High action, quick cuts, fast music, maybe b-roll cutaways, but no real storyline. So when I encountered Single Fin Yellow, it was an anomaly for me. The concept slash storyline immediately hooked me, and then the cast of characters brought it to life in a way that much more closely resembled my surf experience than those other films that I had been watching. And in case you haven't seen Single Fin Yellow, the concept of the film is that one surfboard travels the globe and is ridden by various surfers, six surfers. From California to Hawaii to Mexico, Hawaii and Japan, the surfers are Devin Howard, Bo Young, Daisy Shane, Bonga Perkins, Tyler Hadzikian, Jimmy Gamboa, and Josh Fabro. So the board provides the means to explore these people and the places, and that film was so successful in its execution and stood apart from everything else that I had been watching that I was immediately sold on the filmmaker, Jason Baffa. And anything that was slated to come out from him, I was automatically going to see, regardless of what the new concept was. Well, he delivered the goods again with his second film, One California Day, and then his third film, Bella Vita, was released during the second year of recording Surf Splendor. So I actually had him on as a guest here to discuss that film. Uh, and that was episode 50 back in 2014. If you wanna go back and dig that out of the archives. Then Jason diverted from surfing and he made a documentary called Looper, which is about the relationship between caddies and golfers. It's actually narrated by Bill Murray. 
also very good. You can and should rent that anywhere that you stream movies. It's on YouTube, Amazon Prime, all that sort of stuff. And I hadn't spoken to Jason in probably eight years, but he happened to be on a surf trip a few months back with some mutual friends. And I got a text from one of them, Jimmy Rodello, who said that Jason was directing a surfing documentary series for Disney Plus and that I should reconnect with him to check it out. So thank you, Jimmy, for the heads up and making this happen. That series is called Chasing Waves, and it is focused on Japanese surf culture as it exists in Japan and has branched out around the world, in California, Hawaii, and Australia, through the likes of Kanoe Igarashi, Mahina Maeda, and Connor O'Leary, among others. As with all of Jason's work, it is very character-driven, which really, I think, creates a relatability to each person while still examining the total uniqueness of the culture. All eight episodes are available right now on Disney+. Plus. If you don't have Disney+, Plus, go to DisneyPlus.com to get it. Even if only for one month, it is worth the $10 to watch this series. So, without further ado, here's all the details about it with Jason Baffa. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I hope that you enjoy our conversation. It's been a, it's been a 24 hours, but all good. A little wet, but all good. Give me the rundown. What's happening? Where are you, and what's happening? Uh, so in Santa Barbara, we're technically in Carpinteria on the north end near Montecito, and you know, not to date this recording, but uh, we just had a big storm blow through on uh, January 9th, which is five years to the day of the massive. Uh, and horrible mudslide event we had where we lost, uh, a lot of people lost property and, and some lives were lost. So I think uh, we're, we're all as a community dealing with a little PTSD, I can speak for my house at least. And um, you know, when that storm hit last night, people were evacuated and streets were flooding and your head starts racing. And you know, there was a lot of, do we do this or that or, or whatever, but uh, we stayed and, and did fine. And, um, you know, I've talked to some friends who had some damage, but all in all, I think um, tra tragedy missed, which is good, good news. We, we are living in crazy times, it seems. It's, it's always something, isn't it? It is. Um, I saw that manhole covers were being blown out from the streets in Montecito. And so just thinking like that you could be walking through a puddle and fall into a sewer is a, <laughs> is a crazy thought in Montecito, you know, maybe if you were on vacation in a third world country, but crazy. It's right out of a Charlie Chaplin film, you know, get, get washed out to sea. Um, yeah. You know, uh, but great effort by the first responders here. I just went yeah. for a mount, mountain bike ride and, you know, they're, they're in and moving, uh, moving debris, moving trees that fell and, and, uh, keeping those creeks clear. We're just, you know, the watershed here is such a huge part of the system. Every little point break that surfers think of has some form of creek that kind of flows through there at some point. And that's, you know, what makes the area special. Um, but when it rains really hard, like it did, and for those who have followed it, when we've had, you know, burn scars and there's lack of vegetation up on the hill, that water just comes 
charging down. It, it reminds me of when I was a kid and you'd do the old um, Universal Studios tour and the tram would come around the corner and the, <laughs> they'd go, and now it's the flash flood, you know? And it was like an yeah. A-team set. It feels a little like that. You walk out to these creeks and you just see these torrents of water. You know, if anybody's following Instagram, there's a lot of stuff being posted. So it's it's a little wild, but you know, the, the world cycled through this many a time. We've just decided to put ourselves in the way and, and that's for us to deal with. <laughs> that's a good point. Um, were you in town for that big swell event last week at the end of last week? Yeah, I shot a little bit with my nephews. We're, we're working on a small project. Um, that's the biggest I've ever seen Santa Barbara in my life. Um, kind of, you know, closeout sections from point to, you know, end of a cove. And, um, I didn't get down to Rincon, but I saw some photos of crazy waves. A couple of friends of ours paddled out, but, um, my nephew Parker was looking at it and he said, it looks surfable. And then it'll be white water just to the horizon. So it was, as anyone who saw it, it was, um, it was wild, you know, and, the imagery of Sandspit's pretty crazy. I I looked for a spot. I wanted to paddle out and just, it was kind of messy. I just didn't have it in yeah. there, so, you know. I, I was wondering if it was surfable. I mean, even Rencon, which I never have seen Rencon not surfable. Yeah. And the couple of images that I saw were still shots that uh, made it look doable, but I wasn't on the beach. And so I wasn't able to fully assess whether or not you could even make the paddle out or what. Yeah, I think it was, you know, it was dodging the, just the unsurmountable amount of water that was pushing through yeah. every now and then. And then it would settle. It was a lowly, you know, I looked at some of the, you know, lesser known spots near us that can get really good on a West Well. And um, in between the lulls, it looked super fun. It didn't even look that intimidating, but then it would just yeah. you know, like wall out. And it was, it was interesting the way the energy really pushed. Like if you look at images of sand spit or the video it's really sweeping wide and i think that storm was so close the energy just kind of it didn't bend in like we're used to you know it was it was a lot of i guess maxing out for for what these points can handle and all the sand is gone it's going to be really interesting to see the way it, it comes back and how things are going to change and new spots may pop up but we'll see yeah that'd yeah. be interesting well um let's talk about surf films <laughs> yeah. Um, congratulations on all of your success since I last saw you. I know it, it, we should have started with it's good to see you. Uh, that interview we did was how many years ago now? Going on ten, maybe almost. Probably eight or nine. Was, yeah, I want to say it was 2014. So that would be eight and a half, probably, because it wasn't at the beginning of the year. Um, do you remember by any chance where we recorded? Tyler Hadzikian's old surf shop. Yes. How crazy is that? And, and as you poignant, poignantly put it, we did it at a time where you had to explain to me what a podcast was. <laughs> so the world's changed in a few ways. You weren't the only person. I honestly, the vast majority of people I interviewed back then, yeah, had no clue. It was, it was new beginnings. It was for sure. And I'm glad to, glad to have had the foresight to get in early because <laughs> I was developing the reps when, uh, and like not, I was not very good at it when nobody was listening. And so I was able to develop the muscle so that when people were listening, then I was comfortable with it, you know? Yeah, you got a little more rhythm going. Well, congrats and congrats for sticking with it. You know, it's, it's wonderful to see 
when someone uh, connects with something and puts something out there that people respond to. And it, I, I know it takes work. So it's, it's good on you guys for staying after it. You know, it's, uh, it's exciting. And thanks again for, for having me, but yeah, surf films, that was Bella Vita. So that was my third film at the time. Uh, yeah. And, and we, uh, I don't know if you remember this, but we actually hosted a screening of it in Long Beach and Chris Del Moro came down for the screening um, and we sold out the place actually. And it was like, it was again, very early into my podcasting game. And it was the first time we tried to do an, a community event and it was so well received. And I tried to do one or two others after that, but the film makers were not as well organized as you were. I think mm -hmm. you made the process like plug and play for anybody around the world, I think, who wanted to do it. So it was really easy for me to do it, to get the theater, to do their portion of it, to advertise it, to have all the assets to advertise it. All of that made it seamless. It's, it's, it's work. <laughs> and, you know, the brands that put out movies have a marketing team, or at least they used to, and the independents have to do that work or have a small team of people who can jump in or, or partner. You know, there's some great curated now. Um, screening tours and whatnot it's it's interesting you bring that up because i got an email the other day it's actually the 20 year anniversary of single fin yellow my first film and there was some interest in a 20 year anniversary tour um which sounds great but like my brain starts thinking of all the things you just mentioned and i don't have the bandwidth for that you know and yeah. um i don't know if anyone's listening who's into that sort of thing feel free to hit me up we could talk about it but um i i do think as surfers, we're, we are such a wonderful community. It was something I really realized on this new project, Chasing Waves. Um, and it's a global community of support. And I do think the, you know, the kind of getting around the campfire, you know, where it all began can still live in putting movies up, putting music up, having art shows. I mean, I think, you know, and we're all kind of coming out of this pandemic with a hangover but this idea of getting people together is so important, you know, and, and I think in doing it in ways that aren't always surf contests, um, but just keeping that community spirit alive. And, and that's what I love about movies. And it, it's too bad. It's become a little tricky uh, on a, a financial end for independents to do that. You know, the days of Bruce Brown barnstorming, his movies are beautiful. And some of us were able to do it to a degree, but, it's getting tricky um, and my hat's off to anyone who tries and, and, uh, and I'm also welcome to answer questions and, and whatnot if you need, because it's, um, as you mentioned, there's just a lot to it, you know? Yeah, um, let's come back to that exact conversation of that transition of the way that media is digested, but let's start with what's your background um, or how did you get into filmmaking essentially? Film was long before surf. Um, I grew up in Southern California and um, I actually grew up in Pasadena, which as a kid, I was embarrassed to share with surfers. But then I realized, well, Bob Simmons is from Pasadena and <laughs> so is so Van Halen. So fuck off. But um, it, uh, you know, it was a bit of a landlocked experience. And um, I was always into creative things really young. And luckily, my cousin, who's a bit older, is now a, a working Hollywood cinematographer. At the time, I was about five years old. He was already making little movies. 
And I got to walk in on him shooting a stop motion thing on Super 8 film. And just, I, I remember they lived in Palos Verdes. We were driving back, you know, on the freeway through downtown LA. And I told my parents, I'm going to make movies for a living. It was just like lightning. Um, which now that I'm a parent is so interesting because I see that in my kids with a few things. Uh, my daughter being very into music already at age seven. And um, I don't know if certain people just gravitate to things early or, or how that works. But for me, it was film and it's always been film um, to a fault. There's not much else I can do. And, um, and then, you know, I, I always loved the ocean and surfing and ended up studying film at Loyal Marymount where we were on the ocean and I really, you know, day to day got to spend my time in the water attempting to, to be a good shortboarder at El Porto, which is a very difficult feat and got my clock clean more than a few times and realized, oh, I can kind of combine these interests. And um, a couple of my one senior film, I adapted a short story by Chris Aarons from a book called Good Things Love Water. Um, and I happened, ironically enough, to just be watching it today because I'm digitizing a bunch of old videotapes. And it's not a great cinematic <laughs> piece of work. It's a student film for sure. But, um, you know, it was, it, it was kind of my first experience in connecting surfing and a love for surf culture with filmmaking. And, you know, at the time I was obsessed with John Millis's Big Wednesday and I grew up watching, of course, The Endless Summer. But, um, you know, I wanted kind of that Big Wednesday experience where it was about these characters and surf culture um, more than being a surf movie. Um, and it's funny when I look at it now, I, I, I think I knew so little about surfing and the history of surfing from where I am now that mm -hmm. I, I would have done a lot of things differently um, to make it better. But that was that was the, the beginning. And out of school, I, you know, I kind of did the did the Hollywood route and worked for a production company and was, you know, in, in the mailroom and then got kept getting moved up. And it was an office job and they wanted me to continue and rise up. And I really missed making movies. Um, had some friends from college who we were writing and this was the era of Tarantino, you know, putting Reservoir Dogs in a film fest. And so there was sort of this idea of, oh, if you do an indie thing and you get in festivals, you can have a career. And so I quit my job and we kind of went all in on writing this thing. And my friend had some money, you know, and, and um, in the last hour he got cold feet and kind of pulled the plug on the whole thing. And I was sort of left like, oh, okay, I quit my job and what do I do now? And I think in the end, it was a bit of a gift because my world, it's sort of, I, we traveled as a family. I was really lucky that way. My parents were good about taking us places. And so I, I knew my bubble was bigger than my bubble, but growing up in LA and then going to school in LA, I, I really did grow up in a bubble, you know, summers were in Newport or, or San Clemente and my sister and her husband started migrating up to Santa Barbara. And so I was, that was my world. And I kind of, you know, took a step back and said, I'm going to, you know, I call it now my walkabout phase. I, I went on walkabout and, um, I started going to Hawaii a lot and spending time in Mexico and just traveling as much as I could with a surfboard, you know, it was the excuse. And um, at the time I was doing a little painting and I could do a painting for someone and trade them for a, a few weeks on their couch or whatever it took. And so that was sort of the, I think the inroad to my interest in, in seeing the world and then beginning to think of, wow, it'd be fun to share this, these experiences with people. 
Um, and of course I, you know, ran out of money, probably more realistically put too much money on a credit card and had my parents yell at me that I had to find a real job. And lucky enough, some people I knew through the South Bay had started Blue Torch Television, which for those who remember was one of the first daily action sports TV shows. Um, actually built as a tech company with a back end about a set box top chip where you could watch the TV series, pause it on Slater and buy his board shorts, which now is kind of where we're at, right? But it was so ahead of its time. Uh, and they had the wherewithal that like here we're doing this very forward thinking tech integration. Who's gonna be interested in that? It's gonna be younger people. What are they interested in? Action sports. Who's gonna be interested in making that content? Young people who do it. So it, it was very smart. I give them a lot of credit. Um, Matt Jacobson, CJ Oliveris was one of the point people. CJ ended up starting Fuel TV. Uh, and it was there I met Mark Jeremias, who ended up being one of my great collaborators. And uh, Mark and I really hit it off and, and he saw my love for surfing and, and longboarding and allowed me to go produce, you know, pretty quickly segments about surfing. Um, one of which also I just found on tape this morning, which was the longboard tube riding contest down in Puerto Escondido they used to do. And that was one of my first trips. You know, I went down there with a couple film, you know, support film crew people, some Super 8 film, and we covered it, you know, over the course of the week. And for me, that was, it was huge because not only was I, learning and while getting paid um but i was meeting bonga perkins and and bo young and david kinashita you know people who ended up being influential in my future projects devin howard eventually on a trip joel tudor um you know and and so it it got me realizing wow i love both these things there there is a, a synergy um for anyone who's worked in television, it's a grind. You're you're just, especially that show. So we were doing five shows a week. Wow. Um, they were outside producers. So it was a little bit of packaging stuff being made. Um, cheers to everybody out there who worked on Blue Torch. Um, and we would bring it in and then we'd produce some stuff ourselves. And then you'd build the show. Um, and it's another great relationship of mine. Uh, Carl Kramer was an editor I worked with a lot. And Kramer's gone on to cut all my movies and was our lead editor on Chasing Waves, the new Disney Plus series. So it was a really neat time. And as it, as the technology bubble was bursting and the show was kind of suffering, people started running. I kind of went down with the ship and then at the end saw a point of like, okay, I love this, but I'm, I grew up wanting to make movies and I'm not making movies. I'm kind of on this treadmill. And that's when I, I bailed and I had saved enough money that I could go make Singleton Yellow. Um, not without some hurdles, I ended up raising some money and maxing a credit card to finish it. But that was sort of, you know, the journey of combining it all together. And looking back, it makes sense at the time, it all seemed ridiculous. And yeah, um, yeah. and Singleton was really just out of the want of making a movie. And you know, there's that old saying, if you're gonna make a movie, do something you know. So I, somebody said yeah. that in film school, it stuck in my head. And um, I was dumb enough to think if I did a really good surf movie that enough people in Hollywood surf or like surfing, that that would then get me back into, you know, the next big Jean-Claude Van Damme movie or whatever it would have been. <laughs> uh, but it was, um, it was an amazing time. You know, it, it took a while and, um, 
I think it was three or four years later, 20 years this summer, we, we did our first screenings. And, um, you know, a lot of credit to Mark Jeremiah, his brother, Stefan Jeremiah, in everything you brought up about screening. They, they were already doing a little bit with snow films and snowboarding and some skate stuff. And they plugged Singleton and me sort of into that system of how you promote. You know, we would print flyers. I still have some and, and, and give them to kids to pass out at the parking lot at, at Blackie's or Malibu. And, you know, it was it was building that culture and community. And it was very hands on because we didn't have Instagram or Twitter um, and we weren't even really doing email campaigns. So it was um, putting posters up at the surf shop and the coffee shop and, you know, and it was fun and it worked because people loved getting together. I think, you know, whether or not they liked the movie, I think just giving people an excuse to go out and, and kind of enjoy something as a community was cool. Uh, what was the concept for Single Thin Yellow? So that was based on an early idea I'd had in, in film school about following one object. It's something I've always been interested in and, and had kind of drafted a couple more Hollywood versions. And, um, you know, while at Blue Torch, um, I'm trying to think of what I was watching, but surf movies were going through a little bit of a, a change where you had had the video all action, you know, genre. And I think at least for me, there was a bit of a limit on that. And then you started seeing uh, the woodshed stuff, you know, and um, Scott Sones made a skate film that was great. And, you know, Chris and Emmett, and of course, Jack did uh, Thicker Than Water. And I think September sessions had been finished by then. And I remember, I probably don't give it enough credit like what an influence those projects had because it, it for the first time I saw surfing in a way that it, it evoked emotion you know there was there was something deeper going on there that I was feeling that I got out of Big Wednesday you know out of that out of that type of project and I definitely you know it's kind of I think in my career it's a little bit to take all these things and put them in a blender and see what comes out and, and longboarding didn't have much of anything you know not to discredit I think Thomas had made the ceiling which people absolutely love and a lot of respect for that but a very different style of project I wanted to do something that felt like it had a story beginning middle and end and kind of some character depth um and that was the goal you know and um I'm lucky that people enjoyed it because it allowed me to go do another one um do you remember the film Shelter yeah yeah. There was a there was a segment of that where everybody's riding a green single fin kind of. Uh, I think that's in thicker than water, actually. Oh, is it really? I'm sure Chris will text me later and remind me. Yeah, but um, okay, okay. Yeah, the and green maybe the green board, which is out of the Malloy head. You know, Chris uh, Chris has been a friend for a while, and um, he deserves a lot of credit for all, all that cool stuff comes out of his brain. The guy's a savant and. Uh, I'm uh, I'm honored to get to have worked with them through the years. So yeah. yeah, the green board, I mean, right. That's a good five minute sequence. And I, I absolutely, I'm sure that had an effect on me. I mean, I can't say I remember watching that film and then going, Oh, I got to go make my own. No. But there's no way that that wouldn't have left an impression, you know, but as the viewer, um, I remember that standing out as, because I love all these surfers individually and I've seen yeah. all of them surfing in a dozen different films on their 
shapers surfboards and so it was a total kind of new experience for me to see them all try to ride the same exact board you know yeah so um yeah and i wanted to see more of it so it was a perfect it was a lot and a board that was a board that was a little tricky too right so it's you know you're you're making people work which is entertaining i mean the, the scene in that film that stands out to me is kelly working on the guitar and i think they shot that the day before maybe one of the big contests and there's just this this soulfulness to the experience and this intimacy and how it it plays against him surfing. And I remember just loving that. I would watch that again and again going, gosh, to, if I can make something that evokes this same kind of emotion, you know, yeah. I call it the, the goosebump factor. It's like, that's always my goal to just to get some, whether it's a laugh or a, or a rise out of people. I feel if, if you're getting that goosebump factor, I feel that I'm, I and my team are doing our jobs right, you know? Totally. Um... I want to ask you about One California Day because I watched that film over and over again <laughs> when it came out. Uh, how did you pick Thank the you. cast of characters? Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, that was fun. That was, um, I mentioned Mark and Stefan and um, Stefan's made fun of me. I've been hit in the head a lot of times, so I tend to forget things. I also enjoy happy hour. That might have something to do with it. But um, <laughs> Stefan was saying he was very much involved in these conversations and I, I honestly don't remember, but I remember we were planning the screenings of Single Fin and talking a little bit about what's next. And there was a moment where Steph and I were talking about doing something with Hobie Alter that I was really excited about. And so I was already thinking about kind of this tradition of surfing in California and um, and that project wasn't working, but at the same time, these books, kind of these day in the life photo books, um, I should know the name of them, but I think it was called Day in the Life, Day in the Life New York, Day in the Life, LA. And I don't know, I don't know if it's Toshin, but somebody was sending out a group of photographers on a day to capture the city and then building these great coffee table books. And they had one and we were kind of looking through it. I was like, wow, this is a really interesting concept. Like, can you do a movie this way? Like, what if we did that here? Um, and looking back, you know, Mark's been very poignant about it because he's, he's so creative and, um, and very tapped into surf culture, Mark Jeremias. At that point, the cameras were all looking at Indo and, and where can we go and where's the new wave? And nobody was running a bear flag on their, you know, on their Quicksilver gear or their Ruka gear or whatever. It just, people, you know, we had moved on, which made sense. And, and so I think we, we kind of lucked into it because it really just came out of this want of capturing this place and to answer your question to do that we said okay you know how can we kind of show different parts of it and different when i say parts not just locations but ethos of surfing right so joel tudor being very different than maybe the malloy crew or you know tyler hatsikian against you know joe curran and um it just sort of started evolving that way and there was people you know we felt like we had to work with because it's just like, how do you not try to get Joe and Tom Curran in a movie about California? Um, and at the same time, I think there was, you know, there was relationships. It's, it's a, I was, um, I was thinking about our chat on my ride and how much of this, you know, going back to that blue torch thing. I just love working with my friends since I was a kid. I like getting my call, my friends over and grabbing a camera and doing something. And I, I think it's, it steered a lot of these projects too. You know, you meet people 
and you want to work with them because you like hanging out with them and you end up on these projects hanging out with them quite a bit. So if you don't get along, then it's painful. And, um, and so I think that was a lot of it too. So it was, you know, who can we pick in that area that makes sense and represents, you know, with Jed Knoll and Greg, you had this passing down, you know, uh, this deep love for surfing and, and building these board replicas and, it just was finding those pieces that sort of made sense to us, at least, you know, um, should Dayton Reynolds have had a big part in it? Yeah, probably. But, you know, it's kind of, you do it and, um, and we were shooting film, so you couldn't just shoot everybody. It became very strategic. And on that, the original idea, we talked a lot about attempting to pick a swell and shoot it in one day. Yeah. And for Mark and I, you know, Mark and I are both a little bit OCD and we, we like to kind of control our imagery and we just couldn't, especially back then, wrap our heads around finding enough filmmakers that we could entrust with shooting film. Yeah. Uh, and then even having the communication, you know, again, that was whatever, 2006, seven, eight, I think we were shooting. Uh, it's just a different time. You know, now with everybody owning a red and cell phones, you probably could orchestrate that. It might be a fun project, but for us, we, we kind of, then embrace the idea of one day and it is what it is. Um, but thank you for watching that one. I think of all the films is really left an impression from what I hear on surfers throughout the world, which is so meaningful because, you know, yeah. you do them, you do them for people to enjoy. <laughs> They're self-indulgent, yeah. but you do them for people. to enjoy. Of course. Um, I want to go back a little bit. You were talking about, um, saving up money to film and shoot single fin yellow. Yeah. What did it cost to make a film back in those days? And obviously the business model back then was to sell individual units of DVDs, which were 30 bucks was the retail cost. So how much uh, did you have to come up with to make a film? And then were those two projects successful? Yeah. Um, single fin is probably mathematically my most successful, but part okay. of that might be because I made it for the least amount. <laughs> um, I think we were in the can and out like up on a screen for around $85,000, um, I had I had self-financed and or put on credit a good half of that. And my sister, God bless her who's older, one of my sisters has an MBA from uh, UCLA she she stepped in and goes okay you, you need a business plan you need investors like you're doing this wrong so yeah. about halfway through the shoot we and again i you know i didn't pay myself like that that covered right. plane tickets hotels uh airfare or excuse me um film stock and then film processing and then bar tabs and whatever else you know i could stoke out the guys with as as we went along and um we reset, I have a business plan that I ended up using on the future films because she hit it out of the park and I brought in investors. So we raised another, you know, 40,000 plus dollars, Mark Jeremiah's in Build Worldwide kicked in a hair more to own kind of the, the distribution rights. And, um, and we made the movie and you're right, like that was a beautiful time because you have this movie, then there's some distribution costs, on top of that, you're printing, you know, your first run of DVDs, whatever that is, 5,000 say. Um, so that's an investment. 
I couldn't tell you offhand, I want to guess two to three dollars a DVD. So maybe you put in 10, 15,000 then. And then those sell to surf shops for 14 bucks, you know, 15 bucks. And then the surf shop doubles it. That was sort of the math. Um, and the screening tours, you put on the screening tours and you're hopefully, you know, running out theaters and stuff like that tends to be a losing prop proposition, but if you can get sponsors on board and, you know, you get some free money coming in, um, that makes a big difference. So it, it made sense. And back then what was cool is the surf shops would just order. And then when Christmas came around, they would order a little more because he had just had so many, you know, parents coming in and grabbing them. And it was just this neat, thing that made sense. I mean, the business model has unit breakdown and go, here's our low end. Here's our high end. You know, here's when we did one California day, we said, this is what single Pinello did. This is what we think this will do. Um, and that is now all gone. You know, it just, yeah. I, I have a bunch of DVDs uh, in a shed here in Santa Barbara that, you know, it's, uh, you can hang them from the rear view mirror and keep pigeons away from your hood or something. But <laughs> It, um, it was cool. It, it was cool to kind of have it, it in a way that was, you could break it down. It made sense. Obviously, if your film didn't work, then, you know, it's not to say everything's going to be a home run. But um, Mark and I always came to it with like, hey, let's make evergreen titles. Let's make things that feel like, let's put the energy in, spend the money on film, whatever that is, to, to build stuff that will last. I mean, it's why you call this company Build Worldwide. We really put a lot of thought and heart into hopefully at the time doing things that would stick around. So I'm really honored that they have, um, you know, now we're cycling through new iterations of where you find these things. And, and that's kind of a trip too. like single fin. I didn't have the money to do. I don't think the technology was there to do an HD transfer because DVD wasn't an HD medium at that time. Um, so I can't get it on iTunes. They won't accept it as a standard definition, which some people oh ask, like, why isn't it on iTunes? All your other movies are. So I'd have to go back to the NEG, rescan it and all that, which is, you know, it's, it's laborious. And I'm not, I didn't really set up the project to do that efficiently. Um, and I've, I've, you know, I've taken to the, the Instagram feed, like, do you guys think we should try to do this? And everyone's like, no, yeah. take the money and do something new or whatever. So. <laughs> But it's, you get tripped up, you know? And so you yeah. get into this game of trying to um, future-proof your work. Um, totally. You know, even Bella Vita was kind of, we shot mostly 35, but then some 2K digital. And now we're, it's 4K for chasing waves, you know? And the acquisition's probably gonna change to 6K in another five years. So you're always, it, it's it's a bit of a hamster wheel. Um. When I was asking about how'd you pick the characters for one California day, the reason I asked is because that's like a through line, I think, through all your work is uh, the characters are very, very interesting. And that continues through with Chasing Waves. Mm -hmm. And so you said, should we have had more Dane Reynolds? And it's like, you know, Dane um, it almost prefers to not be a character. Like Dane lets his surfing do the talking and other people showcase that greatly. And I think like in the modern surf world, there's actually not enough characters mm. like in the way that it's displayed through a lot of the WSL and other people's work, they're really focusing on the surfing and they're really not trying to develop character. Yeah. And so all of your projects are 
a really breath of fresh air. And it almost, the surfing still does matter. You have to have good surfing. It absolutely helps to, you know, if Joe Curran can surf well and Tom, but they're such interesting, colorful characters as well. And you focus on that. Your films always focus on that more than anything is what it feels like to me. Well, thank you. And, yeah. you know, I, it probably on a certain level comes from being a frustrated narrative, you know, movie maker uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and loving great stories and great movies. And how do I, how do I cheat that into this surf world I love? And, you know, kind of the hybrid of what it becomes, because I think you're right, you know, and I've had this conversation with, with other people off the record, um, you know, that I think our, our professional surfing world is hurting because as surfers, we love to watch the active surfing. For the non-surfer, it's a little unrelatable. And so then all you have is, is the character. And if you don't care about the person you're watching, it, it, the disconnect happens very quickly. And so to get people to tune in and watch, you know, a heat, a pipeline, it's a bit of a, you know, it, it's a light show, right? It's amazing, it's impressive. And people who surf or don't surf, because a lot of us don't surf pipe, can get that and you get the danger and the drama. But for the average spot, I think, you know, we're missing the mark by not finding a way to get to know those people better. And, um, you know, there's another series on another platform, a uh, platform I absolutely love. And I, I don't know if that series hit the mark either for me. Uh, it was interesting because it came out as we were finishing ours, Chasing Waves, and I was super intimidated because they had a lot more access than we had, which is something we can talk about because that was very different on this series than my movies in the past where I was working with my best friends in a backpack, you know, and this new project was bigger crews and, and then a very different uh, approach. But at the same time, you know, it's, um, we need to, we need to share who these people are beyond, I think their interest in the technicalities of surfing. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I guess part of that is choosing people with interesting stories, you know, and, and I credit on Chasing Waves, a, a great team of people who helped me in that, you know, and I learned a lot actually about it. And I, you know, I think if we're lucky enough to do a season two, we all, we, we collectively learn some lessons that which episodes maybe feel stronger and why, yeah. and it's more often than not because of story and, you know, what people are, are, the who, what, why, you know, who, who yeah. do we care about? What, what are their, what are the stakes and, and what are they trying to accomplish? Well, like uh, Kanoa Igarashi, I've known since he was young, you know, and I found him more interesting through your lens mm. than I have found him in my own personal interactions wow. with him, or certainly more so than what the WSL has portrayed. Um, and I was like, man, he's super smart. He's like shockingly, um, I don't know if humble's the right word, but like grounded in terms of his connection to his family and this kind of be him needing to honor them or just wanting to honor them and all the hard work that they've done to help him get to where he is and uh, was very articulate in the way that he communicated all of it. I was like, man, I loved Kanoa more after watching this. Well, that's cool. I, you know, thank you. And He's such a tremendous surfer and um, he's, I feel for him because, you know, there's that news clip of what he's four or five years old and he's, he's getting interviewed. 
and it's the great clip. We've all seen it, but you know, you can't not run it because he's like, I'm going to be, you know, world champ or whatever he says. And, you know, but to be, have the lens on you at that level for that long and then to keep bringing it really yeah. is, um, it's impressive and it's not easy, yeah. you know. Um, I, I've been on that side. I've seen the other side with my nephews growing up, you know, and, and becoming pro surfers and being Connor and Parker Coffin and and what they go through. And, and Kanoa really, you know, he, he brings a focus that's just undeniable. And I, I think that's very him, but I also think that's very Japanese. You know, I think he gets a lot of that from that Japanese heritage. And, um, you know, I, I, I do believe going into this project, I kind of had this thesis of, okay, we're going to look at Japanese surf culture. The pitch was very, the fulcrum was the Olympics. You know, how are the Olympics going to change um, surf culture in Japan? Uh, this was before we knew the pandemic would shut doors, but we kind of thought we'd be there before and after and shoot and get to know people and get to know athletes and, and then kind of see the, the back end of it. And um, I really thought, oh, well, Japanese families probably frown on surfing. You know, it's this vagabond sport that we've talked about in other media projects um, in other places. And, and yet, you know, now it's in the Olympics, it's legitimate. And what I found in doing the series and talking to people, I think, I think I'm behind. I think that's already been realized in Japan. And I say that with, you know, again, from my outside lens looking in, but that we have things that, you know, can be broken down, wave pools, you can have a coach, you can shoot a session in slow motion and, and have someone break it down. The Japanese for years, you know, the first time I ever saw a bottom turn broken down in a surf mag was a Japanese surf mag, you know, or how to do the perfect cutback. There's a fascination with style and, and hand placement and, and all these details that I don't think other you know, and, and this is a big generalization, but other surf communities have necessarily looked at until recent times. And so because it's becoming more of a part of surfing, that makes it, it makes more sense to a, you know, a, a Japanese uh, parent who's like, oh, you want to do what? You want to be a surfer? Now they can look at it and go, oh, wow. Okay. Well, yes, it's an Olympic sport. It's a real thing. You can make money. Kanoa yeah. obviously is showing that. And, um, and yet there's also this other finite level of it. You can break it down. You can have a coach. You can go to a wave pool and do reps, like all these things. And because of that, I think the talent that's going to come up out of there, I, I think people are going to be blown away. I really um, just, you can kind of feel this energy that reminds me of the early days of the Brazilian, you know, push and, and, and kind of how everybody's all of a sudden saying, wow, everybody good's Brazilian. I, I really do think you could see that happen with, um, with a crew of Japanese men and women. Yeah. Um, Mahina Maeda, I think in her storyline, probably in episode one, talks about that. She talks about, and she grew up in Hawaii, but um, her parents are Japanese. And so she talks about American kids would get rewarded from their parents or praised from their parents regardless on their performance in whatever the sport was if the kids sucked at the sport if they lose they still get pat on the back and say you're wonderful she said my life was the exact opposite my parents 
wouldn't give me validation even if I won. They would still criticize my performance even when I was winning. And so I think that was more representative of Japanese culture, you know, um, which is very it's, interesting. It's intense, you know, and and I knew some, some of my best friends growing up had um, parents who either still lived in, uh, whether it was Japan, or a few Chinese friends and, and how intense the expectations were on them scholastically uh, through sport, whatever it was, it was such a different thing than what I was going through. You know, totally. my parents are like, oh yeah, you gotta have good grades, but you know, also love what you're doing and chase film. And it was just, it, it was fascinating to me. And, and, you know, you get to know these stories firsthand. I'm, I'm getting to interview these people and I'm hearing things um, that actually really moved me. You know, I, I ended up calling a few of my friends that I grew up with because I didn't realize how hard as, as these characters share, and as you'll see, if you watch this show, they found growing up multicultural was and sort of the identity of fitting in. And, you know, I went back and called some of the friends I grew up with. And I said, man, I'm sorry. Like, were you going through that? And almost hundred percent of resounding. Yeah, but you know, it's fine. I'm fine. I was like, God, dude, I'm sorry. I, I had no idea. So I, you know, I really think this series, if you have any interest in surfing or documentary filmmaking, there's something there, but even more so this kind of idea of multicultural identity and, you know, performance and parental expectations, I feel it can relate to a lot of people beyond, you know, just the average surfer. Um, and I'm, I'm proud of that. I'm really proud of the team. Um, there was a lot of great people who worked on this thing. So I, I only well, get a little bit of the credit. How, uh, did the project come to you or was it your concept that you pitched? Yeah, you know how life works. It was, it was in the middle of the pandemic. We were sort of stuck at home. And um, at the, this moment in my life, I had sort of sworn I wouldn't do anything surfing. And I was working on my writing and kind of going back to that kid who came out of college and was going to go make indie films and uh, had a script that we were working on getting financed. And the phone rings and it was a, a very good, very old friend of mine in Christopher Cowan. And just to frame it, Chris's mom and my mom were buddies. So literally in diapers, they had us playing together. And he's gone on to produce some wonderful stuff, a lot of stuff for CNN. And, um, you know, I think the text message said, hey, can you get on a call? Disney's interested in doing surfing. So I called him up and uh, I remember sitting on my then balcony and, and looking out the ocean and he said, look, I've been pitching some ideas. They're really interested in content about Japanese culture and um, surfing came up, your name came up. They love One California Day. They, you know, the few people here have seen it. They love Single Fin Yellow. Would you be up for it? And my brain kind of started spinning because it was against everything I told myself I was gonna be doing at the time. And yet it was like, wow, okay, well, here's a really good old friend I've always wanted to work with. I grew up as a Southern California kid in love with Disney, you know, and not only totally. the parks, but the culture. And I wanted to work at Imagineering at one point and design the rides. And, um, and, and then this idea of, wow, could I get to do surfing, not out of a backpack, but with the support where we can, you know, have high speed cameras and fancy drones. And, you know, my brain starts thinking visually of all the toys. And so I said, yes. And we then had to flush it out. Chris and I worked together. Chris really carried the ball on, on kind of putting together a concept that, that worked 
for them, for Disney. And then Disney, you know, we, we, this was all remote because it was pandemic. We did a bunch of Zoom interviews and started flushing out the casting and, and kind of, you know, I, I joke, it's a little bit of Bella Vita, One California Day, and Looper's in a blender. It's sort of, and, and so we kind of took a similar approach of like, who are different characters who represent different parts of Japanese surf culture and different regions. And I spent a lot of time reaching out to friends, you know, through the years who are either Japanese or have done media on my projects who are from Japan and said, who do I need to talk to? Who should be in this? Because I really felt the pressure of a surf community that supported me. I mean, if not for the Japanese with the DVD sales on Single and Yellow and One Cover Day, I wouldn't get to keep making surf movies. And so I, I felt that pressure of, I want to do something that will make them proud. And, you know, on these things, you're always going to miss somebody and you're always going to have the person you want, but can't get or whatever it is. And that certainly happened, but we did our best to, you know, do our homework and, and get, you know, some core key people um, that can tell this story or at least shed a little bit of light, you know, into what it is to be uh, from Japan or have Japanese heritage and be in the pro surfing world. Um, and, and so it that's seems, our field. Seems like there's more space to tell the story uh, over the course of eight episodes. It, it's eight, right? It's eight, yeah. Yeah, eight episodes so it's, rather it's, than a 90-minute film. Yeah, it, there, there's, um, there is a freedom. There's also an intimidation. You're essentially, it's six plus hours of content. So it's kind of yeah. making three feature films. Um, and, and there's, you know, the, there's a schedule. So it's a bit of a race to the finish. And there's always the, um, not the fear, but you, you can fall back on, oh, okay, well, we'll just let that go. And I've really... I, I did my best to kind of keep the same level of expectation that I would put if I was doing a movie that I hoped around in 20, 30 years that, that this thing could kind of live on that same plateau of at least visual quality and, and storytelling. And, you know, and then life throws you curveballs. You know, Japan closed its doors because of the pandemic. So my core team that was going to fly in and shoot this thing, we literally couldn't go to Japan. Um, and then you start scratching your head, well, how are we even going to do this? You know, and, um, and frankly, a lot of it was done like this, where we had teams embedded in Japan, in Australia, um, teams following Connor O'Leary once he got to Europe. And I would sit on a laptop and look at frames and Chris Cowan would sit and co-executive producer Sophie Cruz would sit. And, and it, it got insane. There was days where we had a shoot in Australia, a shoot in Japan and a shoot in California. And so you're literally up 24 hours a day. We would kind of platoon it on a certain level, uh, you know, and I have a bottle of tequila back there for when it really got rough and you just kind of try to keep it going. Um, but we, we, we had great teams and we had the liberty of time. The schedule was long. So as sequences got shot, I could give notes. I could look at it, kind of say like, hey, you guys are missing this. Or Chris would say, wow, we really should have more of this for, you know, always thinking about the editing um, and what we would need to, to tell the story. And, and I think that helped us a lot because you kind of, you shape it as you go and you learn as a team, you know? Yeah. Um, so I look at, I watch it and I get a little emotional in the sense that I can't believe we pulled it off on a certain level. Um, 
I guess in a way that I watch it, it feels like something I would have gone and shot, you know? Um, and that's always exciting to me because it's, it's tough to watch something and feel like, oh gosh, you know? And there's, there's moments that, you know, I, I worry a little about, but that's also life. You know, when you don't have all the access, it's hard to do stuff sometimes. Um, can you explain what the structure of the storyline is? You mentioned earlier that the fulcrum was the Olympics, but yeah, that happens pretty early in the series. Yeah, because Japan shut its doors and we couldn't go and sort of a, approach it the way we wanted to, we opted to move the Olympic story up. And so uh, as a series, you get to know Team Japan a little bit and the qualification process to a degree, because there were some interesting stories there and, and you know, uh, Mahina's story sort of fit in there um, where she was going head to head with Shino, uh, a girl from Japan. And um, so we wanted to get into that, but we also, you know, we knew there was other, other stuff, Yuma being the one really interesting thing for me. He's kind of a longboard free surfer and, he packs up a van and does a road trip through Japan and sort of, it's very of my other films, learns a bit about his history and the surf culture in Japan. And so we get to go on a bit of a road trip through him. So we wanted to intercut these different things. Uh, and it just, it seemed to make sense to sort of address the Olympics and what happened and then spend a little more time on the back end of kind of after that event, how did that change these characters' lives, you know, life in Japan, um, and there was also an interest as the show developed to keep it on a more worldwide uh, um, perspective and bring in voices, you know, and not be solely in Japan and only in Japan. Um, and, and so that was tricky. It was like, okay, well, how do we connect the dots here? Um, but you get a bit of history. I think you get a bit of insight into um, how things have evolved there and how we got to the Olympics and quite a bit about Fernando and his path to get surfing in the Olympics, um, which, you know, again, it's, it's a passionate person. I think when people talk about their passions, there's, there's usually some meat on the bone there. And, and I really enjoy seeing what he went through to, to get surfing into the Olympics, whether or not you agree or disagree with it. I, I think there's something to commend him on on never giving up on his personal dream, uh, which we touch on a little bit. And, you know, at the end of the series, I think leave the door open for what's gonna happen next in Olympics in France, which people are saying could be Chopu for the surfing event. Yeah. Yeah, just to fill in the names of who you're talking about with yeah, broadening sorry. the conversation, uh, Gerlach is in it. Brissick is a talking kind of uh, building context for yeah. how Jap Japan fits into the surf world. Um, I'm curious if you could elaborate a little bit on how surfing found its way into Japan and what were kind of the origin stories of surfing in Japan. Yeah, it's, you know, not unlike, I guess, other uh, ocean related places. There is, you know, from the Edo period. So we're talking 200 years ago, um, writings about people riding waves. Uh, they had these itako boards, which were floorboards and boats that were removable. And you know, as the story goes, the fishermen would come in and the kids would grab these boards and slide on waves. Um, and so that that is documented, you know, as early as I think the 1700s. Um, but surfing, not unlike in Bella Vida, really seems to have found its place in Japan 
through the US military. So post-World War II, uh, you had active servicemen coming in and they brought their boards. They're like, oh, I'm going to this island. I'm getting transferred from Hawaii to Okinawa. I'm bringing this new longboard. And so, you know, we, we show a little bit of Bruce Brown's footage. He went, I think in 64 or three. Uh, and literally there's lifeguards throwing the surfers off, you know, out, out of the water and pulling them in because they think it's so dangerous. So it's, it's, it's relatively new, but as we touch on in the series, you know, I think there is a fascination with Western culture and being cool. And, and, and I think for some people, in, including some of the characters who we interview, an interest in, in being um, a bit of a rebel, you know, and that surfing obviously has always had a bit of that image. And, and that's what really caught on in the early days um, and has obviously evolved quite a ways from that. All right, you know I've been singing the praises of AG1. And if health, wellness, nutrition is part of your New Year's resolution, as it should be, by the way, not just this New Year's, but for all time, AG1 is the quickest, most efficient way to get you there. AG1 is a whole foods powder fortified with mushroom enzyme, probiotic, prebiotic, and a grand total of 75 vitamins and minerals, the sum total of which fills the nutrient gaps in your diet, promotes gut health, and supports whole body vitality. It helps with recovery, boosts energy and neurofunctioning, and supports immunity. Research it all for yourself. Don't take my word for it. But when you do research it, go through our portal, athleticgreens.com surf. That supports our work. When you sign up, they will then ship you a pouch of powder monthly. It's as simple as that. It shows up at your door. You take one scoop, you mix it with water. It takes 20 seconds in the morning and your box for nutrition is checked. By going through athleticgreens.com surf, you will also get a one-year supply of vitamin D for free and five free travel packs. And you can feel comfortable trying it with a 60-day money-back guarantee, so you got nothing to lose. But I've never heard of anyone utilizing that money-back guarantee because AG1 solves for a very complex equation that we've all been chasing throughout our adulthood. So again, athleticgreens.com surf. Set yourself up for success and no fuss, health, and wellness. Athleticgreens.com surf. Hiring for a small business is critical. It's imperative that you find a highly qualified professional to treat and grow your business with the same care and detail that you do. LinkedIn Jobs will be your next big unlock. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team fast and for free. Everybody is already on LinkedIn with their resume and their references. So the fact that LinkedIn built a hiring platform to connect the dots between everything is simple genius. It's way more sophisticated than a job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set, desire, ambition, all in an effort to help us advance our position. And it's easy to use and intuitive. So effective that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Fast hiring solutions means achieving your goals in record time with rapid growth in 2024. LinkedIn Jobs will even help you write the job descriptions and give you tools and prompts to help you interview your candidate like a pro. LinkedIn.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. 
and you can let the world's largest social network of business professionals work to connect you with the ideal candidate to help you grow your business. That is linkedin.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. The jo- the film or the series does the most comprehensive job that I've seen of uh, showcasing Japanese surf culture because I've seen tidbits of it here and there, but the variety of stories that you tell and even the juxtaposition of Shino's story with Mahina Maeda's story because Mahina, who's from Hawaii and is taking the path of like uh, training super hard, being very regimented about she's got some talent and she's going to be very regimented to kind of leverage that to become a better talent. Her story's juxtaposition with Shino's, who they're vying for the same Olympic spot. And Shino is this young, preternatural talent who um, gets a lot of resource and opportunity thrown at her. Like brands want to sponsor her. She's doing photo shoots all of the time. So that would be time that could also be dedicated towards training and surfing more frequently and whatever. So there's these two different paths that these girls are on. And um, I won't spoil who gets the Olympic berth in case anybody doesn't already know, but it's a very kind of interesting, the the culture has in one sense for Mahina almost demanded that she is not good enough and that she has to continually try harder. But the culture also wants to celebrate and make celebrity out of over here. And so seeing the way that those two things manifested were was very, very interesting. So again, I hadn't known that detail. Like I know mm-hmm. they love Kanoa and he's a superstar on the level of almost like a boy band would be, you know, in America. Um, but I didn't know her story. And the guy traveling in the van, I also didn't know that story. So it was just a really rich telling of, again, comprehensive telling of the culture that I hadn't yet seen. Yeah, well, thank you. You know, it's, um, I think we, we, Chris and Cowan and I talked a lot from the earliest, you know, points of beginning. How do we do a surf thing, but make it very much about the people? It's not a yeah. surf movie at all, you know, and, and I credit him for really pushing me on that. And, um, and, and I think what you're speaking to is, is just that ethos. And, you know, we had, things that I've never benefited from where we had four story producers plus a lead story producer, wow. you know, a co-executive producer who is very story driven, helping me and Chris oversee all these things. And, and, and then each story producer had an editor. So we had four edit bays up kind of rolling through. And once we made the decision that each episode would intercut stories, you can imagine you're on this schedule. So you're looking at the end, but you're like, Oh wait, how do we, like, how do we know what goes there? Because if something doesn't work, like, and so we yeah. had what we would joke horse trading sessions where, oh, you have that one moment, like, well, let's move that to episode four and I'm going to move this. And it, it made it harder, but I'm very proud of it. It's something we wanted to do with One California Day, like that long ago, I've been wanting to intercut storylines like that. And so it, it, uh, it was more work, but I think it makes it more dynamic. And you kind of, as you mentioned, Yuma's in the van, you get to kind of come in and out of his trip and meet yeah. these other people. And I would worry if one episode was just the van trip that it, you know, you kind of just get lost in it. Um, but it, it, it was this team. It was a great team of people who really can sit and, and dig into 
you know, finding how to share these things in a way that I, I, I truly hope um, are as meaningful to people who watch it as they have been to us. Because I know as a team, there's a moment where we call it chasing tears because almost every interview, someone would start crying, <laughs> which I personally feel is a reflection on where we are as a world post pandemic. I think everybody is just coming out of this stressful thing and you start talking about your family or surfing and it just would be this deluge of tears. But I think, you know, the other part of that is we, we are really getting to the core of what drives these people and what's important to them. And, um, you know, surfing is a beautiful thing. It, it's not easy to make a living these days in the surf industry. Uh, yeah. And you're, and you're looking at a microcosm of that. And so I think that is, um, I, I agree. I think it's really interesting. And, you know, I feel for someone like Shino, who's pretty young, like these are young athletes who are just getting yeah. to know themselves. And, you know, when I was that age, I think I was just going off to university, you know, to keg parties and like just to be really a fool. And here they are having to, you know, be on this world stage and under a, a true microscope. Um, and then the social media being a part of that, you know, we touch on Kanoa's experiences with social media, which has been talked about before, but I do, I feel for him to, to kind of bring it and bring that professionalism that you mentioned while under the scrutiny, you know? And, um, and that's the world we're in, you know? I, I, I laughed yesterday, the family was ordering pizza. Like you can't get six people to agree on what kind of pizza to get, you know? So to think that, you know, you could make a show that everybody's gonna like is impossible. Like you can't choose the same pizza. So you just gotta put something out. I think that you, you find fascinating yourself and you and your team are proud of and, and hope it connects with, with people who watch it. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about cert, like, uh, again, I had never seen this comprehensive telling of surf, uh, Japanese surf culture, but I do have a pretty comprehensive or more comprehensive understanding of Australian surf culture, mm -hmm. of American surf culture, of Brazilian surf culture now. And each uh, when a culture gets involved in the sport and they bring something to the sport and you kind of see like, wow, Australia's junior system and all of that infrastructure does phenomenal for building world champs, you know, and real athletes and competitors. And then you see Brazil get in and you're like, man, the grit that Adriana de Souza had to come out of, uh, or the grit that he de developed from coming out of having little resource, this was his one way out. And wow, that made him super determined. And so, but then there's always a downside down the road, you know, and like with American surf culture, it's like, man, all these kids have so much resource and access to opportunity from a young age that really paves the way for them to go through juniors, for them to get on tour. But it turns out, that it doesn't foster grit and that once they're on tour, there's a difference between getting on tour and having that level of talent versus winning world uh, world titles. And so it'll be interesting to see Japan, the things that we've talked about that is unique to their culture that really benefits them will get them onto the world tour, but it'll be interesting to see what kind of the shortcomings are of that yeah. really intense parenting, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe the, maybe the deeper stories of uh, the story of athletics is that there are just certain people who, you know, are special and take all of it. And, you know, like a Kanoa can use certain things 
because I, I do think there, there could be more bad than good, you know, with that kind of pressure and, or, you know, putting so much scrutiny on yourself that you're limiting your ability to be free and just perform, you know, and kind of find the joy in it. Um, if it's always a job, I think, especially with surfing, the performance can hinder, you know, um, yeah. that there needs to be a bit of love in that. Uh, Gerlach's a great example of someone who's kind of tapped into that idea, um, the wave key of it all. And, um, you know, we'll see. It, it, it is to be, it's a story to be told. I, I do think we're going to be seeing a lot of talented people, you know, I think even just I, watching, I watching the Olympics and seeing the skateboarding and the snowboarding, you know, there's just this crew of kids who are explosive and exciting and um it, it'll be interesting i feel i've been very lucky with my timing on projects you know and i do feel even this one uh, i'd love to say oh we knew it was happening and that's why we put our cameras there but i just think the timing is yeah. going to be really interesting and good for us are there any is there any japanese surf film industry are there japanese surf filmmakers so this was fascinating especially because of the remote aspect how difficult it was for me to access um, support, I guess I'll say. Jed Akira is an ex-pro surfer and he had been shooting water stuff. And I kind of found him through our social media world, but he didn't have gear. We had to get um, water gear flown from Mike Cricket in Hawaii. And um, the cinematographer, a guy named Chris Nichols, who worked his butt off, uh, plays around with surfing. He's a filmmaker and we needed that to kind of drive the visual story of everything we shot in Japan. But even looking like, oh, can we find footage of Shino? Can we find footage of Hiroto in Japan? It doesn't e exist right now. I think that's changing, but culturally, this is another interesting topic. They're very protective of their spots. The um, spots are run by the deeper set of elders <laughs> who don't like people photographing it. And I, I respect that and I appreciate it. I think if they want to um, see their youth sort of hit that stratosphere we're talking about of pro surferness, there may need to be a little give and take of you know sharing footage from their home country. Um, I think of it maybe a little like Hawaii, maybe certain areas stay protective, certain areas end up a little more blown up. But um, yeah, I was amazed, you know, there were, there were some interesting navigational um, hurdles on getting our cameras in certain spots, you know, and um, like so many places, it's kind of who you know and asking the right people permission and, and really going through your P's and Q's. But because of that, there wasn't this wealth of footage for me to yeah. pull from, um, which made it tricky. Yeah. Well, the reason I ask is um, you open the gateway for me to learn about some of these people and it made me I, I want to learn more you know yeah. I was like oh well there's probably Japanese surf films out there that I just don't know about that maybe I should go watch and learn about but if they don't exist I guess not it's pretty tough I mean maybe there's some underground ones and, and I don't want to say there aren't and, and have people mad at me but I certainly had trouble I mean I had trouble finding footage of Mar Ono you know he had shot some stuff Crazy. with um with uh, Taylor Steele and I reached out to Taylor and you know, it's as, as this stuff we move on, it's like, oh, that's on some film can somewhere. And um, you know, it, I, I just thought like, oh, there's gotta be a bunch of great stuff of him surfing river mouths and you know, and, and it just, it's hard to find that stuff, you know, especially yeah, now 
4K. I know they have a lot of industry, like there is magazine, Japanese magazines, obviously board builders, obviously neoprene manufacturers, that sort of stuff. But film, I haven't really seen because all my exposure has been through the lens of somebody, you know, American yeah. or an Australian. Yeah. So. Yeah. And maybe, maybe this project will inspire some young people there, you know, probably yeah. one of the, the greatest joys I've gotten out of this run of making this stuff is I'll run into a kid who's 10, 15 years younger than me. And he'll say, ah, I started getting into filmmaking because I love Singleton Yellow or whatever. Yeah. And, and that's truly happened on sets, on commercials. And it's, you know, it's nice to know that, you know, whether you're inspiring someone to grab a board and go out and catch a few waves or grab a camera and tell a story, it, it, it makes you feel good at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, total diversion, but uh, what is Ziobafa? Ah, Ziobafa is a wine project with my friends from Italy that came out of making Bella Vita. If okay. you've seen Bella Vita, some of it was shot on a vineyard. That's the Castellani vineyard. And uh, when we finished the film, the winemaker said, you know, we need another project because when when guys get older, if they don't have a project, they just get together once a year and get drunk and it's meaningless. But if you have a project, you keep doing something. So uh, we're making three wines and they're all um, they're all bottled in Tuscany. One, the white wines is grown. The grapes are grown in Sicily on organic farm. Uh, the red's grown there in Tuscany. And then the Prosecco is, of course, up from the north where Prosecco's from. And it's uh, sustainably produced in a zero waste facility with recycled packaging and really kind of a lot of attention to detail to be a forward organic wine, which um, was a little bit ahead of its time. The wine industry is coming around. There's a few more organic wines now, but um, it was really fun, you know, and I'm a small part of it. The, the winemaker and the Italians do all the work, but it's called Ziobafa wine. And on the East Coast, it's pretty readily available um, and in Europe. And then we have it in select stores in California or wine.com is a really easy way to get it if you want to try it. And it's not fancy. It's the idea is it's the wine you crack open with pizza or, you know, good old fashioned table wine. Yeah, I saw it after Bella Vita, after I met you with Bella Vita. And I was almost certain that it was connected to that. And I think maybe Devin Howard shared a bottle with me um, at some point. And then I did see it in the market somewhere, maybe Seaside Market. Yeah. Yeah, they have it, right? And so I grabbed a couple bottles here and there whenever I would see it, just because I knew of the connection to you. And uh, it's excellent. Thank you. It is very good. I've only ever had the red. Um, yeah. But I came from, I don't know, I, you and I have never discussed this, but I worked in the wine business ah. right, Yeah, years and years ago for like a decade out of college. And um, so I was very curious about the project. And I've always been, I've always thought the wine, every vintage that I've had has been like, like you said, an everyday drinker, but phenomenal for the price point. Wow. Well, thank you. Thank you for yeah. that. We'll, we'll send this on to Pierre Giorgio because he does get Perfect. credit, but you know, it was, uh, it was fun for me to kind of be a part of a project that's not a film you know it, it truly yeah. is something that you uh although you're still at the mercy of mother nature which keeps it interesting and exciting and like you said vintages change but um his family has been selling wine for, from Italy for over 120 years I think and so there's a deep history there and and um 
for him, I think it's an exciting project because of the organic and the, and the recycled packaging to just do something a little forward thinking where our footprint's a little lighter. And I, I do think because of the organic and it's a lower alcohol, lower sulfite, there's no added sulfites, that it's a little cleaner on the system. Um, yeah, there's members of my family who joke that they drink it and don't get a hangover, which I would never use as a marketing ploy because, you know, but um, I think it is a little easier on your system. Yeah. Uh, and it's fun. Well, I'll send you some. We'll, we'll figure you. that one out when this when this airs. <laughs> Absolutely. Presumably you're working on the next thing. Is there a next project in the works? Yeah, it's always, you know, my world's having a lot of balls in the air. Um, yeah. I had, I had written the indie film that we were working to finance. So that one's still in the conversation. It's a, it's a scripted feature, nothing about surfing. Uh, it's actually an action adventure about a guy who gets trapped in an autonomous driving vehicle he helped design. So kind of a guy stuck in a box scenario. Uh, I have a TV series that's being looked at right now at, at um, one of the agencies that is truly my passion project. If there was one, you know, what do you want to do next? And it's um, it's built to be fun and entertaining and, you know, kind of the way Top Gun Maverick is just a good old fashioned movie. Um, I wanted to do a series that had that feeling, but also shared my love of the ocean. So it's about an ex Navy diver. And uh, he leads a rogue team of tre treasure salvage hunters on missions. And, you know, like any good old action movie, he's brought in to help our government with some top secret thing that they can't handle on their own. And so it's just a lot of fun and things blow up and a lot of time on the water and in the water, which I would be really exciting to take on. I think um, logistically that's tough. Hollywood looks at it and anytime you shoot on the water, it gets really expensive fast. So that that's the uphill battle, but I feel as a surf community, you know, most of the key stunt coordinators for Hollywood are some of our surf buddies from, yeah. you know, Oahu and, and whatnot. So um, uh, I've had a few chats with friends and I think I think we can figure out a way to do it right and make it fun. Because um, you had mentioned to me, I think, when we were trading notes, what surfer would I love to work with next? Yeah. And my quick answer on that is Chris Hemsworth, because he'd be perfect in this series. <laughs> Man, so Chris, and he shreds. And he rips. But it's not a surf series. It's about someone passionately connected to the ocean who may surf a little bit too. But I mean, uh, he, he's a legit surfer and yeah. by the way, a phenomenal actor. Like for being such a hunk, he doesn't need to be that talented. Right. He's actually really good. Like he's like Brad Pitt in that way. You know, it's like, damn, the guy's actually really good. We were watching Limitless, the documentary series that's on Nat Geo. So we're, we're part of the same family as of tomorrow. But uh, my wife kept joking when he was being like, he'd do his interview and she'd go, he, he's just, this is distracting. He's too good looking. Like, I'm not hearing what he's saying. <laughs> I know. And then on top of it, he rips. And then he rips. I, you know, yeah. it's good. Yeah. Chris, if you're listening, uh, we're, we're fans. Hit me up. Let's go make something uh, cool. Um... <laughs> What's your current relationship like with surfing? How often do you get to surf nowadays? So I have a 10-year-old son who's obsessed with surfing. So that's been kind of fun. Um, I'm a bit of his Uber driver, and he often wants me to shoot footage of him, which is ridiculous. But um, he gets me in the water quite a bit. And, you know, it's, it's fun and interesting. In, in this zone of Santa Barbara, it, there's a real shortboard culture. So when it's pumping, it's hard to get a wave. 
but there's a lot of days where it's not pumping and I feel like I can find spots on my bigger boards and, and just get what I need. And I don't need much, you know, that might've been a line in shelter. I, I think Matt Young, it's, it's in one of those movies. He says, as you get older, the neat thing is you need less waves. And that always stuck in my head, but there's some truth in it. Um, I do like surfing with less people, which is harder and harder, but you know, I've got a very eclectic, uh, just a bunch of weird boards. I'm looking up because some of them are in the rafters, but single fins and gliders and, uh, you know, just fun kind of cruisy things. And then when the surf gets a little better, um, I have a few eggs and Josh Hall, the poor Josh made me the scotch that he did with Skip Fry um, that I just got to take on a trip with those guys down to Scorpion Bay. And so, you know, I, yeah, I'm, I'm guess I'm still obsessed with surfing. I'd like to do some media, not about surfing, but at the end of the day, I spend a lot of brain and, and passionate energy in getting into the water, but I think it makes me a better person. At least that's, yeah. that's what my, that's what my wife says. It absolutely does. Yeah. Go surf. So, I don't know if you had time to formulate an answer to this question and inquiry, but you have unique insight into being an uncle of uh, Connor Coffin. So my question for you is just, will we see Connor uh, trying to requalify for the world tour? Well, my, my cheesy answer is you should pick Connor up and you can have a good conversation about that. Um, because I don't think I'm in a place to, to answer for him. I think he's in a good place. You know, he's going through a lot of changes. He's going to get married next year. And um, I know there's some sponsorship changes he's been talking about. And I think he, you know, I, I will say, because I, I think this is fair to bring up that a lot of people haven't discussed. He was that season that in, I guess it was last season that brought in that midseason cut. He, at the time he was working as the player rep, the surfer rep. So he was the go-between between between the voice of the surfers and the WSL. There's always someone and he had sort of been uh, given that and was training under whoever had it before him, I forget. And it's, a, you know, he like Connor does, he takes everything very seriously and, and wanted to do a good job. But you when you get into a scenario like that, where a decision is made that a lot of people didn't like on the surfing end, yeah, and they're voicing that, you're caught in the middle then of, you know, this very negative energy. And I think in retrospect for him, that, that was tough and probably took away from him being able to focus just on being a surfer and winning heats. And um, you know, again, I think it, I think he'd be a really interesting guy to get into and talk about that. And, and maybe yeah. I've said too much already, but I think that's all fairly known. And, and, I, and I hadn't really thought about it until I talked to him that, you know, it, it, there's a reason Kanoa Igarashi does well because he is laser focused, you know, and I saw that firsthand working with him on chasing waves. Um, uh, to the point where it was even hard for us to get access. And I'm like, dude, we're doing this about Japan. Like, this is your thing. And it was, well, but, you know, I got Olympics and then I'm going to win a world title. And it was it, like the plan was set and nobody's getting in the way. Um, and so when you take the other side of that, like, wow, I'm trying to help the players. And they were in this huge fight about this cut that nobody wants. And the, then that's a whole nother thing, you know, and it, it's an interesting lesson for anybody listening you know i think you got to really pick and choose your battles in this day and age on where you put your energy and your focus and um it, it's easy to get distracted even if your intentions are the best yeah um sometimes and this comes up a little bit in connor o'leary's story in chasing waves 
sometimes being a little selfish is needed if what you're trying to do inherently is selfish, win something, right? I mean, yeah. that's, I'm, I'm trying to take this away from everybody else, you know? Um, I know as a filmmaker, I don't bring that to the table. I want to be the best filmmaker, but I, I'm also not like doing it in that sense, you know? And, and maybe that's why some other people have this project and I don't, I, you know, I don't know. It's, I think at the end of the day, you got to wake up and chase your passions and just try to be smart about your decisions. So I'm excited yeah. for Connor. I, I know he's, I think the game of the wild card, I just heard that recently. And so he can, if he wants to pursue the challenger series, do it. He's a little banged up. We were shooting in Hawaii and he, it's like a turf toe, but he hyperextended his toe. Um, and so he's been kind of coming through that. And, uh, you know, I, I know, I know he likes being home too. It's pretty nice around <laughs> here when it's not flooding. Yeah. Um, but, um, I think the world of both my nephews and uh, I'd love watching them surf. And uh, I, you know, I think the tour misses out not having him, but we'll see. We'll see where, where it ends up. Those are good insights. I had not thought about that surfer's rep uh, responsibility. I think in the past it might've been Adrian Buchan before. Connor. That sounds right. That sounds right. And so, it, and it always had been like a guy who was on, you know, year 12 yeah. of his, of his yeah. career on tour. So he had already put in a ton of hard yards and he was probably looking at retirement anyways, but that's the value of being the surfer's rep is he has that much experience on tour. So it is almost an odd fit to have somebody like Connor who is, you know, fourth in the world at the time and um, yeah. on the ascent to take on that responsibility. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I, th I know he was honored to be asked because it's, yeah, like, of hey, we, we trust you as our voice. Right. And I think it's a testament of, you know, how many people liked him. Uh, but it's uh, anytime you get in the middle of a fight, it's it's uh, not easy yeah. on anybody. Um, totally. And that definitely, I think, was a tumultuous decision. And, you know, as as a viewer, I don't know if it helped it, I, you know, in a way, knowing that half the field had qualified took away some of the drama for me. I mean, I guess it became all about this race to the finish line and, but, you know, it's like, I, we were just in Hawaii in early December and I talked to some friends there. It's like, you kind of want to see pro surfing end at pipe. Kind of want to see people duking it out in the best ways in the world that scare the crap out of me. And it's just, you know, it's something fun and, and meaningful. And um, that to me is, is a miss. So, you know, if I ran the zoo, There'd be beer in every <laughs> drinking fountain, but I don't. So let them <laughs> figure it out. <laughs> There's you, Bafa. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Bafa. But, <laughs> I, I, I apologize for saying Bafa, Zio Bafa. In Italy, it's Bafa. In California, it's Bafa. You know, gotcha. Six dozen or, um, I've been called worse across the board. Yeah. But um, um, well, final question for everybody interviewed is just what was the last surfboard you rode or what boards are you riding currently? The last surfboard I rode, the last surfboard oh. I rode was the beginning of this swell. And it's, um, it's a Tyler Hatzikian. He calls it a baby gun. So it's a single fin, but it's a very pulled in um, kind of, I think I'm riding a nine. He actually made it for me when I went to Bali. And um, it's just, it's a fun kind of, gets you in early, but can handle a little hollow, uh, you know, face and we were uh my son and i were surfing one of the 
points that doesn't get as many people as bring con at low tide and some pretty fun waves actually actually it was christmas day and we kind of got it alone so you know it still happens yeah uh how do you get a board from tyler had zeke in well instagram is a good start just dm him um yeah i i'm i'm thankfully for all my years of doing film projects with tyler looking at a few beautiful boards he's made me, but uh, he's more interested in racing his cars these days, I think. But he is making boards. And I think uh, Instagram, and there's a website. I think Tyler Surfboards. I'm just saying, isn't there a wait list? Can I even get one if I wanted one? I will, I don't have such answers. Um, <laughs> well, I did like seeing a couple of clips of him in Chasing Waves too. Yeah, I snuck in a few of the old crew, didn't I? Always, Good for uh, you. Part of that too is like, well, my footage, I know I own and have it here, so we don't have to go through any licensing. But um, yeah, you know, there's a little bit of nepotism. I think Connor and Parker have little cameos here or there. And uh, yeah, I tried to, tried to represent a, a few friends and, uh, you know, it's what we do. Yeah, no, and it was well done and they earned the spot and it was relevant to the conversation that was well, taking place. So it wasn't, wasn't forced. Try to keep it, you know. Yeah, that was a lot of my role on this team. There were very few people who surfed. So it was interesting. I, I had to do a lot of shouldering that sort of surf. Well, you can't put that there, that there. And, you yeah. know, with six hours, I'm still not sure I got everything. But uh, I uh, it's funny. I think you're the first person who's seen this thing outside of my little world of, of production people. So it would be very awkward if this conversation started with, wow, you just really didn't do it. <laughs> I never, yeah, I don't appreciate it. Well, um, Disney didn't make it easy for me to jump through the screener process, let me tell you that. But I finally navigated my way through it. There, there's, a, um, there's, a, there's a lot of protocols in that, in that world. But it'll, totally. be early, it'll be easy now. As soon as January 11th passes uh, on the Disney Plus app, all episodes dig in and learn a bit about Japan. Sweet. We'll direct everybody to all of your stuff in post-production as well. Uh, thank you. Thank Gladly. You. Jason, great to reconnect after eight years. Let's uh, do it again more, more frequently. Yeah, David, it's really good to see you and congrats again on keeping this going and, and keeping surf stories out there. You know, it's a beautiful thing. And uh, thank you for the time. Thank you everyone for listening and, and watching the projects through the year. I, I appreciate it. Right on. Thanks. So I written on a so it say Bingo Moon is on his way. Thank you, Jason Baffa. Uh, Chasing Waves is, of course, available on Disney+. Plus. It is an eight-part series, and uh, again, among the best versions of a documentary about surfing anywhere. I mean, I loved 100-Foot Wave. I think that is kind of right up there as well. But this is every bit as good as that, and um, again, opens my eyes to Japanese surf culture, which I really didn't have a ton of exposure to prior. So. 
Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Disney. You can find everything that we discussed on surfsplendorpodcast.com. As always, there is a comment section at the bottom if you want to leave a comment for Jason. We also have a subscribe and support tab if you're so inclined. You can support us for $5 a month. It's a recurring monthly donation that you set up. You can cancel it at any time, but it is the foundation of our business allows us to keep all of this stuff archived for posterity and also expand and grow the show. We've got these episodes on YouTube now and we're pulling pieces of that to advertise the show on Instagram. So we have video editors and a bunch of people involved in the process. So your support helps us to grow the show in more and more ways every year. So thank you very much, very much appreciated. Until next week, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor reminding you to get back into the ocean, share some waves, and as always, shred on. And don't forget to post your job for free at linkedin.com slash surf. That's linkedin.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply.